I don't know what it was about uh, worship this morning, but I just, I just, I don't know, I just began to weep. And um, it may be due to my own insecurity. I do have a few. <laughs> and um, because I'm not preaching as often, there's an insecurity that can rise up. And um, I share that only to share it with some vulnerability to say that's not unlike the places that each of us have. Uh, your insecurities might show themselves in other ways, in challenges of life, financial need, jobs, a big presentation that you have to give at school. I mean, you know, all of that stuff in life, raising children um, or raising parents. <laughs> We have Cynthia's 100-year-old mother living with us is the illusion there. And uh, for me, I guess it was just the insecurity, not preaching as often. You begin to wonder whether you're up to the task, whatever the task might be. And uh, this morning I was sitting in the chapel in our prayer time a little after nine, and I began to think through sort of the progression of uh, where we've been in John's gospel, and when you get to the sixth chapter, we're going to enter into the seventh chapter this morning. When you get into the sixth chapter, there's this experience where all these people are gathered, and Jesus said, they're hungry, let's give them something to eat. And they all looked at each other and went. <laughs> and a little boy stepped forward, or someone saw a boy's lunch and volunteered his lunch. I don't know how it happened. But there were five barley loaves and two little fish, maybe these little dried sardines, more than likely. And the text says, but what are these among so many? And isn't that how we feel at times? What am I among such enormous need that you're having in your life or I'm having in my life? Uh, but the reality is it's really not about us, and that's really um, the message, I think, that I want to share this morning. You'll see an outline in your, in your bulletin, uh, five bullet points, actually. We're going to talk about the tabernacle, but the point is that it's really not about us. You may feel insecure at numerous points along life's journey but it's really not about you unless you make it about you, unless you depend upon yourself. Uh, God simply wants us to come to the place where we say, I can't do that big presentation at work. I can't make this marriage work. I can't, and you fill in the blank, but Jesus said he would. And all of a sudden, the pressure comes off of your performance. Isn't that amazing? Now, the reason that is so is that God who created everything that we see around us has made some choices. And those choices uh, have come to be disclosed through his word, through the revelation that he gives to us. Uh, so, I want to begin reading at uh, John chapter uh, 7, verse 1, 
and really focus on verse 2. Well, I'll read about the first 10 or 12 verses. Uh, now, Jesus had um, just fed 5,000 people, and of those five barley loaves and two fishes, they gathered together a whole bunch of basketfuls of scraps. Uh, in feeding the 5,000, people were wanting to hang with Jesus, not because of Jesus, but because they were hungry and saw what he did. And Jesus said things like, I'm the bread of life. You, know, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they all went, this is weird. And many began to walk with him no longer. And uh, Jesus communicated to them that he was the bread of life. And then in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea. That's down in the south, separated by um, a, a couple of other regions. Uh, because the Jews actually were seeking to kill him. Now the Jewish feast of tabernacles was at hand. And his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here, that is Galilee, and go into Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. Uh, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always uh, ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of uh, it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going to the feast, for my time has not yet come. And when he had said these things to them, uh, he remained in Galilee, and the implication is they left and journeyed south uh, down to Judea. But when his brothers had gone, verse uh, 10, had gone up, uh, then he also went to the feast, but not openly, but as it were in secret. And then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him, and some said, he is good, and others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke uh, openly about him. Well, there's a lot here that uh, we certainly could share, but probably the most important thing is this, no this notion of tabernacles, and that's the bullet point outline that you have here. Uh, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, it says, was at hand. And the Hebrew word for tabernacle, you can see it transliterated here, is Sukkot. Um, and it literally means it's the celebration of the glory of the presence of God with his people. Uh, a, a Sukkot is simply a tent or a dwelling or a booth. Maybe you've heard, the heard of the Festival of Booths. That's the Festival of Tabernacle, the Festival of Tent, uh, the Tabernacle, the place where uh, God um, sought to meet with his people. And a Sukkot is just a temporary dwelling, a temporary shelter. And it was a place where God called his people to remember that he did something 
with them. Exodus 25, we uh, read the first, uh, one of the first mention, mentionings of the tabernacle in Exodus 25, verse 8. We're told that it's a sacred place. God said, build a tent. Well, I have a lot of tents, and they're not sacred. What made this one sacred was God said, build it, and build it a certain way, because I'm going to do something in this tent, and that's what's going to make it sacred or special. I'm going to dwell there in that tent. I'm going to meet with you there. And the tabernacle was also called the tabernacle of meeting or the tent of meeting. God said that he wanted to actually meet with his people which is the very first glimpse that we get after the fall, after the rebellion, after I'll do it my way, God, thank you very much, God created a means by which he could then meet with his people. Regardless of where you are this morning and regardless of how difficult your circumstances, regardless of how estranged you might feel from God, God wants to meet with you. Isn't that awesome? God began to teach his people from the very earliest pages of the scripture that I'm going to meet with you, I'm going to dwell with you, I'm going to be in your midst. So this this notion of tabernacle, this tabernacle of meeting is a place where God would meet with his people and from that place uh, over uh, this tent and over the Ark of the Covenant, God would not only meet with his people, but from that place he would speak to his people. So if you know anything about the scriptures, you'll recognize that what is concealed in the Old Testament becomes revealed in the New Testament. It's like a little bud of a flower in the Old Testament, and we don't really understand why is God doing this, why a tent, and why it, but later on we begin to see the full flower of what his intention was. So he was teaching the people a couple of true, uh, truths there. The first one was that he would have a place where he would meet with his people and he would speak to his people there. So this notion of, of tabernacles then is a place where God called his people to remember that he chose them and called them out of bondage in Egypt and into the wilderness to live in tabernacles. So he said that the celebration of tabernacles, I'm referencing uh, Leviticus chapter uh, 23 and uh, verses 34 and 35, God said, take the foliage from trees. Branches of palm trees, for example, uh, and rejoice before the Lord in these tabernacles that you'll make for seven days. You shall dwell in booths. There's the word, Sukkot. You shall dwell in booths for seven days that generations to come may know that I made Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, for I am God who called them out. God took them out of bondage. We sang the song, Break Every Chain. God called his people out of bondage in Egypt into a place where they could dwell with him. And he said, we're going to represent that every year for seven days. You're going to build a little tabernacle, a sukkot, a booth out of the trees and the limbs of palm trees and the foliage of... 
Go out and prune your trees and then make a shelter, and I want you to live there for seven days, and in doing so, you're going to remember that I've called you out of bondage into a place where I would dwell with you and you with me, and I will speak tenderly to you. That's the notion of the Feast of Tabernacles, and there are three, particularly three uh, celebrations or feasts that the Israelites were called to do every year. Every man, I know they were a little sexist, every man was called to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem one time a year. The first time was through uh, the, uh, the celebration of the Passover, also called unleavened bread, because God said, you don't have time, I'm taking you out of bondage. The second festival is that of Pentecost, also called harvest. You remember these terms. Passover represented the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit after he was killed, buried, raised from the dead, ascended to the Father and poured out his Spirit. And the third one is tabernacles, and that is the celebration of ingathering. Every year, these are the three feasts. Every man has to come to Jerusalem and celebrate these feasts. So the first, and what you see here is that God is teaching his people from the very beginning of what he has done and what he desires to do in them and through them. On your outline, the first tabernacle that I want you to observe is the tabernacle of Moses. In Exodus chapter 40, it says, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. Now, the cloud, God chose to manifest his presence through a cloud that could tangibly be seen during the day. And a fire over that tent by night. So the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, the tent. So that Moses was not even able to enter into the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it because the glory of the Lord filled the, temp the tabernacle. So God gives them a tent that would be sacred, a place where his presence would be, a place from which he would speak to his people, a meeting time, and he would fill that place with his glory. And once in a while, the tangible presence of God was so real that Moses couldn't even enter into the outer portion of that tent. There are times, beloved, when the tangible presence of God desires to break out among us, he is not tame. He wants to show himself with power at times. You can't make it happen. You can simply avail your heart to all that he wants to do and all that he wants to say. So this first tabernacle then that was built God told Moses to build it a certain way. It would be a sacred place. It would be a place of meeting. It would be a place where the glory and the presence of God would be seen. It would be a place where every time the cloud departed and started to move, they knew that was time to do something. Pack up the tent. Get your camels together. 
the cloud's moving, and we're called to do one thing, and that's follow the cloud. Hello? Some of you may have stopped following the cloud. We're assuming that God always does things the very same way. Now, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we're told, in Jesus. But God still has the notion in his heart that he wants his people to follow him. And so they were taught that lesson by virtue of the cloud of his presence that rested over the tabernacle. The second tabernacle that you begin to see in Scripture, the first one being the tabernacle of Moses, the second one is that over a couple of hundred years, uh, the tabernacle, well, sort of became ritualistic, if you will, or sort of wrote, and uh, God called David to build a second tabernacle and to take the Ark of the Covenant and place it back into this tent of David's making according to the design that God said to make it. And this tabernacle then would be, again, a place where God would meet with his people. If you'd like to look there and read a little more about it, uh, you can look at 2 Samuel chapter 6. The whole chapter is about the tabernacle that David built, unlike the tabernacle of Moses. Now, Moses' tabernacle was a place of sacrifice primarily. Worship had to do with sacrificing animals and bringing that blood into that holy place, and there would be atonement that would be made. But David's tabernacle, still being a place of sacrifice, became a little bit different, and that became a place of praise and a place of worship. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're told that David had the notion that he was going to take the Ark of the Covenant and bring it from where it was back into Jerusalem. So you remember the story. So he built a brand new ox cart and they put the Ark on it and they started carrying the Ark back to Jerusalem and a couple of guys that were there uh, uh, the cart began to shake and, and fall. So they put their hands out to steady the cart. And you remember that was the end of them. The, the holiness of God broke out upon them. And David got mad and he turned aside. He took the ark to a place, a little uh, region uh, with a, a family called Obed-Edom and left the, car, the ox cart there with the ark of the covenant for some three or four months. God was dealing with him in his anger because God slew two of evidently his friends. And after then, a couple of months, uh, David decided he would better read what God had intended. And he found out, oh, you don't put the Ark of the Covenant on a new ox cart. God said, this is the way you're going to carry my presence. It's going to be carried on the shoulders of holy men who have sanctified their hearts. Hello? God's not interested in putting his presence on a cart. He's interested in his presence being carried by people who have sanctified their hearts, who have allowed him to have the full sway in their lives. Uh, so in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, of verses 17, from Obed-Edom to Jerusalem. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the Sukkot, the tabernacle that David had erected for it. 
And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of, of hosts. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, it says, then David prepared a place for the ark of God, and he pitched a tent. And if you read that sixth chapter uh, of 2 Samuel, that's the place where David whirls and dances before the presence of the Lord. You see, something different, it wasn't just a place of sacrifice, the, the tabernacle of David was a place where he set up 24 hours a day, seven days a week, worship and praise. I don't know if you were touched this morning in our worship, but I think God wants to do that more and more where his manifest presence breaks out among us, where we can break out of our religiosity, you know, our stoicism. What if somebody sees me cry? What if somebody sees me do something that's weird? We need to stop worrying about being weird. We need to be authentic before Jesus. David stripped down to his inner garments and whirled and danced before the Lord, such that his wife Michael said, oh, you, look, you, really, uh, you really made a spectacle of yourself before the slave women. And from that day forth, she had new children. And David said, you'll remember, <laughs> I'll be more undignified than this. You have, in other words, you haven't seen anything yet it's because it was before my God that I was worshiping and twirling and dancing and worshiping. The tabernacle of Moses was primarily sacrifice. The tabernacle of David was a place of both sacrifice and glorious praise and worship where he was even willing to be undignified to serve God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. What are you holding back from God in your life? Your dignity, your respect, what will people think? I'm here to tell you this morning that there's only one person that you should care about, pleasing, and that's the glorious one who is now seated at both the right hand of the Father and has come to tabernacle among us. The second tabernacle is the tabernacle then of David. David set this tent up and surrounded it with praise. 3,000 or 30,000 worshipers, music, dance, worship, praise. The third tabernacle is the tabernacle of Jesus. You remember when we started John's gospel, the first chapter, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 said, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You see, God wasn't just content to have a tent where he would show up where the people could hear about him or even listen to him or even follow him. When the, the cloud moved, they would move. God wasn't just interested in coming among his people. And if there's anything that I see in the church of Jesus around the globe is that people have the understanding that to be a Christian has, is somehow about serving God. It's not just about serving God. It's about understanding who God is and allowing his presence to tabernacle in our own hearts. You see, Jesus came and he tabernacled among us. And we're told in John's gospel uh, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it is in the person of Jesus that we beheld his glory. 
Glory of the only begotten of the Father, who was full of grace and who was full of truth. God's not interested in a tent anymore. He's interested in a body. And he came in the person of Jesus, the incarnation, where God literally stepped into the flesh of a man. And as he walked around, they said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Remember when we went through our study in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, in him, that is in Jesus, dwelled all of the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. When you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. The third tabernacle is the tabernacle of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, but when Christ came as high priest with the greater covenant and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, but by virtue of his own blood, Jesus became a living tabernacle so that we could see what the Father was like. Some of you might have the notion that God's mean and angry and out to get you. And I would say to you that that is a myth. God can be angry towards sin, but God chose to level his sight for your sin and mine on his son on a cross. And there released the full fury of his wrath and indignation for your sin. You see, there was a, 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 a transfer, if you will. All of my sin and all of your sin went to Jesus. And all of his righteousness and all of his life now comes to you. Is that a good deal or what? Why would we try to take the weight of our own sin upon us when Jesus paid it all? The third tabernacle is the tabernacle of, of Jesus, the perfect way. But there's a fourth tabernacle in the scriptures. And if you've read the book of Acts, you've probably seen it. The fourth tabernacle is the tabernacle of the church. Now, those are people who have been born of the Spirit, people who have received Jesus into their life. You see, in Acts chapter 15, James, during that first council in uh, Jerusalem, James stood up and he said, men and brothers, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets all agree, as it is written, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up. You see, the tabernacle of David that had fallen and collapsed, God has raised it up now with the hearts of people in whom his spirit would now live. Not the tabernacle of Moses where God showed up and met with his people and spoke to them. Not even the tabernacle of David where, where there was worship and praise 24 hours a day. But because of the tabernacle of Jesus, that that Jesus, the most perfect sacrifice, went to a cross and on it was executed for our sin. He really died and was buried, but was raised from the dead and ascended back to the Father. And some 
50 days later, the day during the celebration of Pentecost, they, the Father and the Son, poured out the Spirit upon all flesh such that now his sons and his daughters can speak forth the word of God. Why? Because Jesus, the living tabernacle, is now filling the hearts of men and women. You see, we now are the tabernacle of the church, not because we've joined a new member class, not because you serve as a deacon or an elder or sing in the choir or praise band, but by virtue of God giving you a new heart, circumcising the old man away because the old man has already died with Jesus. Somebody say something. Woo! The old man is now dead. I can still do stupid things, you understand? But the old Steve is now dead. There's a new man alive within me by my spirit that has been made alive by Jesus. I am now a living a living tabernacle where Jesus now dwells, and so are you. That's the good news of this message, that Jesus now lives in the hearts of his people. That fourth tabernacle is the tabernacle of the church. Ephesians 2.21, we are now being built together for a dwelling place of God. God is in Jerry. And he's in me and he's in Glenn, but God wants to now pull us together as living stones and do something. That's why I don't get it when people stay home from church. I don't get it. I've come even when I'm not a pastor. Why? Because I'm a living stone and God fits me somewhere and God needs your stoniness. He needs what he has put within you, and nobody else can bring it to bear. God is building a dwelling place for his very presence in these days. And yes, it's not just Presbyterian or Baptist, Pentecostal or Charismatic. It's, not, it's, all of, it's those people in whom the presence of Jesus dwells. You now are a living tabernacle as part of his church. And if you're alive in him, you'll never die. And if you die in him, you're instantly alive. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Paul says, him we preach, attempting to prepare every man mature in Christ John chapter 7, let me simply tag this. We'll probably spend a little bit more time on it. So Jesus went up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And on that last great day of the feast, now the high priest had a, had a prophetic action that they would take every day during the time of prayer. There was a pitcher of water, and they would simply pour it out before the presence of the altar. On the seventh day of the celebration of tabernacles, the priest stands up with his pitcher of water and begins to pour it out. It's a solemn, prophetic action that the entire crowd began to hush. The culmination of seven days of the celebration of the glory of God and the presence of God through tabernacles and as the priest begins to pour out his pitcher of water, 
at that very moment, someone begins to cry out in a loud voice. If anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will begin to flow, gush, if you will, rivers of living water. And the scripture said, this Jesus spoke because the Spirit was about to be given, but it had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Beloved, what I'm showing you, tracing you by, with you, connecting the dots, beginning back in Exodus and Leviticus and all the way through the Scriptures, is that it was God's intention from the very beginning to meet with His people, to dwell among His people, but not just to meet with them and dwell among them and lead them from an external source. He sent Jesus to be the sacrificial lamb by which He, who is now holy, could come and live His life in you fully. What made the original tabernacle of Moses sacred? The presence of God. What makes your tabernacle holy? It's not your works. It's not how good you perform. It's not any of that stuff. It's the presence of he who is holy. It's the Spirit of God living his life in us and through us. Next chapter 2, verse 4. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all assembled in an upper room with one heart. And suddenly there was a sound as of a rushing mighty wind. I don't know what that would have sounded like. But all of a sudden, he who had been ascended poured forth that which the prophets had disclosed centuries before, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he who was holy was given to the church. And they began to experience, out of their innermost being, they began to the rush flowing rivers of water. The spirit was given. Now men and women can drink freely. Whoever's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. How thirsty do you need to get before you recognize you can't live the Christian life in your own strength? You can't. But Jesus can. You see, God never intended for us to live the Christian life in our own strength. Somebody say amen. Some of you have tried all of your life to straighten yourself up, to reform yourself. If I could only stop smoking or cussing or chewing or, you know, all that stuff, then somehow I'd be holy. Guess what? You're not holy until he's who, holy, who is holy comes and lives his holy life in you. And all of a sudden, the old tent is set apart and becomes sanctified, sacred unto him. The Spirit of God was poured out and is now available to all of us. There's one final tabernacle, and that's the tabernacle, uh, which is an eternal tabernacle. Roman numeral 5. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4, John said, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. 
and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and he himself will be with them and will be, will be their God. You see, there will be a fifth tabernacle and I think Jesus will probably return during the celebration of tabernacles one of these days. Wouldn't that be awesome? So here's the high priest getting ready to pour out his little pitcher of water, the prophetic declaration, and all of a sudden there's a sound. Can you hear the ram's horn? I mean the heavenly sound. And Jesus returns to that very place. Beloved, God's looking for people right now who will surrender all to him, who would hear his voice like Shirley did. He wants to fight for us. Isn't that good? God's not looking for you to become more religious. I say that, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but he's really not. He's not interested in our performance per se. He's very interested in your heart and simply allowing him, inviting him, uh, giving him full sway to your life so that he who is holy can now live his life by his spirit in you. And one of these days, there will be the fulfillment of the fifth tabernacle where the tabernacle of God is with men and women because we are now with him for eternity. I don't have a clue what that looks like. I don't preach very much on eschatology because I don't know. I'm just a simple guy. Guys are much smarter than I am have figured it all out. And I just can't. But I do know that one of these days, God's simply gonna, you're gonna hear a trumpet sound and the clouds are going to be rolled back, as the hymn says, like a scroll. And all of a sudden, the darkness will be no more. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow. And Uncle Charlie, who has since passed away, all of a sudden, all of the saints from every age will be seen clearly by us. And on that day, if Christ is not in you, you will not see that. You'll have another eternal destiny that I can't go into either because I don't understand it all that much. But I know it'll be separation and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You see, it comes down to a choice, beloved, this morning. The choice is will you simply trust Jesus and have him live his life in you? And that means, you know what, when you come... when you come to the task like preaching a sermon and you feel inadequate... You simply say, God, I can't, but you can. When it comes to loving your wife, for example, and it seems impossible, guess what? It is. I can't, but he can. You see, the cross, the cross calls me to come die with Jesus. We don't get to the resurrection until we go through the cross. You say, this husband that you've given me, he, God, I can't. God says, I know but I can. You see, whatever your task, that business deal you're working on and you're staying up late at night striving, how, how's this going to work out? Guess what? You can't, but he can. You see, it's simply allowing Jesus to live his life in you 
in every circumstance, when you face an illness, when a loved one dies, when a relationship is, is difficult, when you lose a job, it's through it all, Jesus is now living his life in you and you belong to him and he is tabernacling now with you. Now, what these five tabernacles then have in common is that the glory of God's presence is dwelling with people. God, this was God's idea, the tabernacle of Moses and then the tabernacle of David and then the tabernacle of Jesus and then the living tabernacle of the church and ultimately the tabernacle in eternity. From the place of God's presence, his glory is being released. The tangible manifestation of his presence as seen in us and through us. That's the mystery of the church. And you get to be a part of it. And we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the glory will be seen as coming from him and not from us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your good presence among us. Lord, thank you that you are always good. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would begin to search through this assembly of your people. God, you're seeing the pain in the hearts. You're seeing the difficulties of circumstances. You're aware of it all. And God, you're sim simply asking us to surrender our lives afresh to the one who loved us from the very beginning and who shall love us until the very end. I wish I could give you a formula, but there is no formula. There's simply a thirst that Holy Spirit gives. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, Jesus said, as the scripture has spoken, out of your innermost being, I, Jesus, will release rivers of living water. God, would you do that today in the life of each one of us afresh?